Welcome to Pursuit of Justice. I'm Lise Wheel. I am so excited to have with us this week Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, who really does need no introduction. Um, one of the most influential, not only law professors, but criminal defense attorneys really in this country, really um, for the last many, many decades. Professor Dershowitz, I don't, I don't mean that to mean that you are uh, an elder statesman or anything like that. You could be only 25 years old, but 37 books since 1982, I guess that would belie the statement I just stayed there, but uh, said there. But you've been writing books at the pace of one a year, um, though this one you wrote very quickly, this latest one, called The Case Against, let me say that again, The Case Against Impeaching Trump. Uh, welcome to the show, Professor Alan Dershowitz of Harvard, my alma mater, uh, the New York, number one New York Times bestselling author, Professor Dershowitz. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. I will accept the title of Elder Statesman. <laughs> I am turning 80 this September, oh, and so, you know, I qualify. Well, uh, it's just great to be with you. I, I just spent a week with my folks who are uh, early octogenarians, and they um, I can barely keep up with my mom on our uh, power walks. So I'm sure that uh, you're just right up there. So just keep it up. Um, oh, okay, let's. We, we have so much to get to. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, President Trump is. Um, not standing firm with the comments that he made uh, to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, Putin um, uh, about uh, really taking Putin's side over our own intelligence agencies. Um, and some have actually called this, um, well, I'll use the T word, but let's not get there quite so quickly. Because I think as a professor, I owe it to you and to our audience, really, to walk through and get us up to speed about what would really qualify for impeachment. Um, we have to get there. We have to understand what it does, get, what it means to impeach a president. As we know from history, we have never had a president, a sitting president, who has been out. Now, let, let me follow this sentence through, everybody, who has been impeached and removed from the office. We have had presidents, a couple of them, who have been impeached. Last week, remember, a President Clinton who was impeached, but he was not actually removed from office because it takes a supermajority, that means two-thirds of the senators, to actually remove a sitting president. So, yes, he was impeached on the floor. Uh, articles of impeachment, in fact, our Professor Dershowitz, I think, would liken those to a probable cause hearing. Stop me, Professor, anytime you want. Um, but that the, the, the senators did not quite get to, at a trial, say, hey, President Clinton, you're out of here, you're removed. Right? Right. And I think it's very important to understand that the impeachment provision was put in our Constitution to distinguish our form of government from the British form of government. In Britain, lots of people were impeached. Some of them were executed. And uh, essentially, the parliament controlled the, co the country. And when our framers sat down to write the impeachment provision, uh, it was proposed that we adopt the British system and that a president can be impeached for maladministration in office, for doing a bad job. Right. Uh, and the Congress uh, rejected, the framers of the Constitution rejected that. And they said, we want to make it hard to remove a president. We don't want the president to serve at the pleasure of the legislature. We want the president to be independent of the legislature. 
And before a president can be removed, you have to prove after a trial in the Senate that he is guilty, that he has been convicted by the Senate of either treason or bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And those are the criteria for removal of a president. Not only that, but the chief justice presides over a trial if the president has been impeached and the Senate is trying him in order to remove him. And so if you're going to remove him for treason, you have to prove that he satisfied the elements of treason, which are set out in the Constitution itself. And we've never had a trial for treason for anything close to what it is alleged that President um, Trump did and that some people, including the former head of the CIA, have described as treasonous. Treasonous is like treason light. But that's not the criteria under the Constitution. To be tried for treason, you have to really do a great deal. You have to basically help an enemy in wartime, an enemy to defeat the United States. Treason would have been committed by people like Benedict Arnold. Um, Early in our history, we put Aaron Burr on trial for treason, but he was acquitted by a jury. So what the president has done now, as critical as one might be of it, doesn't qualify for the constitutional definition of treason. All right. Um, We we understand that there are, as you just described briefly and, and beautifully as always, that there are really two paths then to impeachment. And those are treason, which, which are enumerated. And as you said, mm-hmm. enumerated and the critical words are uh, aiding and a comforting an enemy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And for that, you have to have those, that aiding and comforting. And that has to be watched or testified by two, testimony of two witnesses at least. And there has to be an overt mm-hmm. act. And or a confession in open court. I'm just reading from right. the from the statute. The, 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 so there's right. a real definition of what treason is that aid or comfort to uh, a, a, to an enemy. So you have to be aiding or comforting an enemy, and there have to be at least two witnesses. Okay, there is that definition of treason in the Constitution. On the other side, the other way to get impeachment to get to impeachment are these more nebulous high crimes or misdemeanors, right? What does that mean? And we look in well, the Constitution I, for that, and we don't really find a definition, do we? No, there's no definition in the Constitution of high crimes and misdemeanors, but we know what the framers meant by high crimes. Certainly, high crimes were uh, very serious crimes that are in the statute book, and that would affect governance. I'll give you an example from history, and I tell this example in my book, uh, The Case Against Impeaching Trump. We all know that Alexander Hamilton, because we, many of us have seen the play, but historians know this as well, that Alexander Hamilton had an affair with a woman while he was serving as Secretary of the Treasury. And it was all set up by the husband, who then extorted Hamilton, threatened to expose the affair unless he paid money. Hamilton paid the money. He was extorted. Hamilton, therefore, committed a crime. He committed a serious crime in those days, by the way, adultery. Today it's not a crime, but in those days it was a serious crime. And he was also a conspirator in an extortion plot because he paid the money to the extortionist. But he was also accused of paying the money from Treasury funds. And that would have been a high crime. And so he went out of his way to write a public 
disclosure, admitting that he had care, admitting he paid the money to the great embarrassment of his wife and family, but categorically denying and this right. money came from treasury funds because right. he understood the difference between a high crime and a low crime. Paying extortion to cover up an adulterous affair is a low crime. Using treasury funds to pay would be a high crime. And so Hamilton understood the difference between a low crime and a high crime. And in fact, he wrote the Federalist Paper that dealt with the impeachment provision of the Constitution. So I think we can look to his words as not totally authoritative, but convincing on what the framers had in mind. And the framers had in mind as crimes that show kind of corruption of office. And so Bill Clinton was improperly impeached, in my view, because his crime, too, was a low crime. It had nothing to do with governance. It had to do with a sordid alleged affair that he may have had and then lied about. And so that was not a proper use of the impeachment mechanism, nor well, was the first impeachment Well, let's go, of let's go Johnson. stop at Clinton for a second. Lying about sex, right? Yeah. Lying about yeah. sex, um, uh, which is what <clears throat> the memos that you got and you're referring to, um, was a, as you say, a political sin, uh, a sin of, you know, I did not have sex with that woman. Um, right. No, 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 wait, no, 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 wait, no, let me, let me finish. Let me, let me finish. I, I was there. Let me finish lying, lying about that. Um, I did not have sex with that woman. Um, uh, that was not under oath. That was a, a political sin. That was an embarrassment of, to his family, uh, a cover up, but not a, but a political cover up, if you will. But as you said, as you were about to say, he was not impeached for that though. No. He was impeached for... He was impeached uh, for allegedly committing... Uh, a high crime. Uh, ...perjury which um, is, in when he testified in front of the grand jury. Wh which and is a crime, right? disbarred for that. That's a crime. Okay. But not a high crime. It's a low crime because it wasn't about perjury involving Iran-Contra. That would be a high crime or perjury involving what Nixon did, uh, getting his people to lie about the break-in at the White House, or the break-in at the Democratic National Committee. Those would be high crimes. So the Constitution distinguishes between crimes that involve governance and crimes but that involve just personal isn't behavior. isn't perjury by itself a crime of moral turpitude? Is it the crime it of perjury itself a crime of moral turpitude? It is. It is. Well, but then, that doesn't do it. The Constitution doesn't say crimes of moral turpitude. It says high crimes. And high crimes had a particular meaning at the time of the Constitution. It had to do with governance and crimes, even moral turpitude crimes, and he was disbarred for lack of moral turpitude, do not qualify for impeachable offenses, okay. at least according to my reading. So, of the by that same analysis, would you say that if if Trump committed perjury, he would should not be impeached? No, he should no. If Trump committed perjury about the uh, 2016 election, or if he committed perjury about um, why he spoke to Putin the way he did, those might be governance crimes. Those might be high crimes. But if he were to commit perjury, he hasn't. He hasn't testified under oath. But if he were to commit perjury about, about Stormy Daniels. Um, one of the women, Stormy Daniels, or something like that, no, that not in my view, that would not so be So if he commits crime. perjury about Stormy Daniels, he should not be impeached? I don't think he should be. I don't think he's going to testify about Stormy Daniels. I think he's learned the lesson of Bill Clinton Bill Clinton never should have testified about his sex life and his lawyer Walkman's perjury trap. And I think President Trump 
has seen, learned the lesson of that, and he's not going to make the foolish mistake that Bill Clinton and his lawyers made. Let's go a minute now to now that we've defined the two areas of impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanor treason, because I, I think that's really important for folks to understand. Um, so we, it's not just bandied about, you know, impeachment, how do we get there? I think people understand how we how we do. Um, we, let's go, let's go to that 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 press conference um, that that uh, Trump just had um, right. in Helsinki. It's been called what he said uh, by by others. It's been called what he that what Trump said shameful. Would you agree with that? That what Trump said was I shameful. Think was, I think. Uh, let me divide it into three three issues because it's very important that we divide it into these three issues. First, is it okay for a president to disagree with his intelligence people? Of course it is. If President Kennedy had rejected the intelligence on Bay of Pigs, we would have avoided a disaster. If President Bush had rejected the intelligence on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, we would have avoided a war. So, of course, presidents can reject the conclusions of an intelligence agency. The next question is, should he share that rejection with the Russians? I think the answer to that is no. Uh, and the third question, which is the most serious, is even if he's going to share it with the Russians, should he do it openly and publicly in front of the whole world? And I think the answer to that is no, too. So I think the president made a serious mistake in publicly uh, disagreeing in a self-serving way with the conclusions of all of our intelligence agencies. Disagreeing with the conclusions was not necessarily a mistake, but doing it in a foreign country at a press conference with uh, Putin was a mistake, and I think wrong. Wrong. So, so Trump acted wrongly yesterday or during the conference. In my view, but that's a political issue. That's an issue that should lead people who agree with that analysis to take that into consideration if he runs for office again. Um, but that's not an impeachable offense. It's not even close. Okay, well— Here's why it could be. In impeachable offenses, you go to intent, right? That's the other part I was going to get to that in a minute. A big part of, of determining um, it, whether it's treason, whether it's high crime or misdemeanor, determining whether or not one of these offenses reaches the, reaches, becomes an offense, becomes a criminal act is whether intent is is present, well, correct? Well, first you need the act. You need yeah, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, of course. Before you even of get course, to I'm intent. sorry, yes, yes, I professor. Don't know what the, I don't know what the criminal act would be, so I don't know that you get to the intent. Of but course, assuming assume you have the you get act. past the criminal act, then you get to the, you get to the intent. So what, what the intent here was to probably to protect himself and his reputation and to lay doubts about the fact that he was elected legitimately. That's probably what the intent was. That seems the most logical intent. What else would it have been? Well, Certainly it was an intent to hurt the United States or to damage the reputation of the United States. That wouldn't be his intention. It might be the effect, but it wouldn't be his intention. Well, I ask you that, though, after, after reading this uh, in your book. This comes from uh, page 25 of your book. Um, when, yeah. you, when you consider this extreme, and you call it extreme, hypothetical, you say... Trump calling Vladimir Putin and saying the following. Hey, Vlad, this is from your book. Hey, Vlad, this is Trump speaking. I don't do a very good Trump impersonation. Hey, Vlad, do I, do I have a deal for you? I want to be elected president, and you want to get rid of the Magnitsky, here, turn the page here, sanctions, which I don't like anyway. 
you should help me get elected, you being Vlad, you should help me get elected by giving me dirt you already have on Hillary Clinton, because if I'm elected, there's a better chance to get rid of the sanctions, which I disapprove of. Those end of quotes. So that's not a that's not an impeachable offense in in your in your estimation. Not only that, it's not even a crime. It's what politicians do all the time, writ large. Politicians say all the time, you know, vote for me, uh, and if you vote for me, I'll make sure that women have the right to choose to have an abortion in the state of X. Uh, and if you vote against me, my opponent will probably try to restrict abortion. So that's commonly done, asking somebody to vote for you, and then and then the person says, yeah, but how am I going to help you get elected? And you say, well, if you know any dirt already that you know of on my opponent, please give it to me. That's ordinary politics. It sounds terrible, and maybe it's something that would lead a person against the candidate who did that, but it's not even close to being a crime in my view. Now, the only argument you can make to make that a crime is that because it's a foreign government giving information, maybe the giving of that information violates the campaign finance law, that prohibit foreign governments from contributing to the campaign of an American candidate. But I think that statute involves money and other goods. It doesn't apply to information, because information is protected by the First Amendment. Just like the New York Times could publish stolen material from the Pentagon Papers, from Chelsea Manning, from Snowden, so too a candidate can use information already stolen from uh, his opponent by somebody in a foreign country. That's my understanding and interpretation of the campaign finance law. That's a close question, and reasonable people might disagree about that. Well, I do note, in, in, even in your analysis of that, you do go on a few sentences later and say, you know, if that hypothetical were tweaked and, the, and, and Trump were to say, you know, and you might, Vlad, you know, if you might go into a little bit of hacking there, that would be just fine for me, too. Now that, that would be a could crime. cross some That lines. would be a crime. That uh, that way you're doing you're you're asking them to commit a crime. That is obtaining the information criminally is a crime, whereas giving you the information they've already obtained is not. That may sound very technical, but that's what the Pentagon Papers case was all about. You can publish the material once you've gotten it, but the person who took the material committed a serious crime. Yeah, I mean, I I just uh, you know in, in, in the real world, don't you think that Trump knew that? Vladimir Putin was very possibly hacking Hillary Clinton and by making that phone call or could be making that phone call was just asking him to do some more of it. Well, you know, you'd have to prove that. Um, Don't you think the New York Times um, understood that when they got the material, um, you know, the guy who Daniel Ellsberg or Snowden or Manning may have been continuing to obtain material? You have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person more than knew but basically instructed the criminal to continue criminal activities. And under my hypothetical, the first hypothetical, that wouldn't be the case. Under the second hypothetical, that would be the case. That's why I distinguish the two. Law professors always play with hypotheticals. That's what I've done for 53 years, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tortured, tortured poor law, law students. <laughs> right. right. John Brennan, the former CIA director, said this, what Trump said was almost treasonous. And we've talked about what the definition of treasonous. Uh, I, I suspect you disagree. Well, you know, the word treasonous is like treason light. Um, it's a political variant on the term treason. 
Um, I think what Brennan, who's a great man and served our country wonderfully, and I, I've met him and like him very much, I think what he was saying was that what the president did really undercut uh, the United States, and therefore it's treason-like. But he's not a lawyer, and I don't think he was saying it fit the constitutional definition of treason, because it does not. But um, it, in his view, smacks of the kind of intention or effect that treason uh, might have. And again, that's a political statement, a political uh, argument, and reasonable people could disagree about it. But I don't think there's any disagreement that what the president did does not constitute the technical constitutional crime of treason. If you read my book, The Case Against Impeaching Trump, you'll see why it's so important that the technical definition of a crime be found by the Senate by a two-thirds vote after a trial before a president can be removed. I understand that. Uh, one area that gave me pause is on page 23, you go through a lot of uh, paragraphs of really uh, this, hypotheticals again, but of a president really refusing to leave, uh, a president who has been impeached, a president who refuses to leave even if it, it is found that he has been impeached and has, should be removed, a president who says, I am not going anywhere. And but what do remember, we do in those remember. situations? Sorry. Let, let's remember the hypothetical. That is, he's impeached and the Senate votes to remove him for something that's not a crime. Say they vote to remove him from maladministration by a two-thirds vote. The president says there are three branches of government. Each of us has the right to interpret the Constitution. The Senate interpreted the provisions of the Constitution to say you can remove a president from maladministration. I, the president, think that's wrong, and therefore I'm not going to leave. I don't think I've been properly and constitutionally impeached. If the president did that, the only recourse would be to the Supreme Court of the United States. Congress doesn't have an army. Uh, Congress can't call out the troops and just have them remove the president. They would have to go to the court and get the Supreme Court to decide whether Congress had acted properly in impeaching and removing a president. That's why I disagree with most academics who say that removal of a president is only a political act and it can't be reviewed by the Supreme Court. I agree with Justices Souter and White, who said that maybe the Supreme Court does have a role if Congress acts improperly. Again, that's the position I lay out, and I lay it out clearly and carefully. I may be wrong, but it's important to have that position laid out so we can have a debate about it and people can disagree. And I'm waiting for scholars to come back and try to show why they think I'm wrong. Okay, but you, you wouldn't be saying that just because a president, say, say a President Trump, because that is who's named in your book— that President Trump says, by quote, and I'm quoting your book, by his own interpretation of the Constitution, that he doesn't like it, just because he says he doesn't like it, that Congress votes him out, that he gets to decide that he doesn't go, are you? You're not saying that. Yeah, I am saying that. I'm saying that the president's interpretation of the Constitution is every bit as valid as Congress's interpretation. We have three branches of government. One is called the executive branch. The president is the executive branch. Congress is the legislative branch. If the president interprets the Constitution differently from Congress, the way that happened in Marlboro versus Madison and all the old classic cases, ultimately the Supreme Court has to decide. Congress is no more 
authoritative an interpreter of the Constitution than is the president. The ultimate interpreter of the Constitution under our Supreme Court precedence is the Supreme Court itself. Of course, the framers didn't even contemplate judicial review by the Supreme Court. So they didn't decide how to resolve an issue if each of the three branches of government has a different view of the Constitution. We've now agreed that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter. That's why Al Gore gave up his run for president after the Supreme Court, improperly in my view, and Bush versus Gore, stopped the recount. But he did decide that he would listen to the Supreme Court of the United States. Probably every president would do that. But I believe that a president who was improperly impeached without proof of a crime might very well say, no, I'm not leaving. So you think Trump could say, no, I'm not leaving until the Supreme Court decides, or I'm just not leaving? I think that's, I think that's very possible, yeah. And then we'd have a real constitutional crisis, which is one reason I argue in my book why Congress should never impeach a president and remove him unless there's proof that he committed one of the specified crimes. Congress shouldn't cause a constitutional crisis by improperly impeaching and removing a president. All right. In your book, we've gone through what is not an impeachable offense. And uh, uh, what... What could Trump do to be impeached and removed? He could accept a bribe. He could give a bribe. He could um, uh, commit perjury about governance. He could tell his underlings to lie to law enforcement authorities. There are many things he could do. He could commit treason. Uh, It's very hard to prove treason. But uh, bribery is much easier to prove. Or he could commit some other crime. I mean, he said if he killed somebody in Fifth Avenue, people would still vote for him. But as president, if he killed somebody, um, I suspect that would be deemed to be an impeachable offense. Of course, we've had that in our history once. We did have a vice president who killed somebody. The man he killed was Alexander Hamilton. And Aaron Burr, who was the vice president at the time, was indicted both in New York and in New Jersey for dueling and killing. But he was never brought to trial. I'm interested in your dedication question. You dedicate to uh, uh, civil libertarians, um, um, genuine civil libertarians. What's a disingenuous civil libertarian? It's called the American Civil Liberties Union. The American Civil Liberties Union are fair-weather civil libertarians. They no longer care as much as they used to about freedom of speech and due process. They've now become a full-time anti-Trump organization, their budget went up from 20 or $30 million to $130 million once Trump got uh, elected. And therefore, they turned their attention to making more and more money and away from defending basic core free speech rights, which are unpopular with the left, and due process rights, which are unpopular with the left. And they've devoted their priorities to only civil liberties issues that are popular with the left. And those are important issues and good issues, uh, immigration, deportation, uh, family separation. God bless them for doing all of that. But they are, today, they've become a political force rather than a force for civil liberties. So my dedication is to the ACLU people who really want to defend everybody's civil liberties, not just the civil liberties of people with whom they agree. Okay, great. And, the, and passing the shoe... On the other foot test, I love that. Or the good, the, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, same sort of thing, exactly. Um, these old expressions. It sort of means the same thing, right? 
It does, and it goes back, you know, to the Bible. Uh, you know, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's the golden rule. Mm-hmm. It's nothing new. Just you can't have separate rules for Trump and for Clinton. And to make that point, my publishers have produced a copy, a mock cover of the book called "The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton," mm-hmm. because I would have written that the same book if Hillary Clinton had been elected. The difference is that they would have built a statue to me on Martha's Vineyard. All the liberals would be praising me and calling me the most wonderful person in the world. Now these same people are attacking me because I wrote the same book, but with Trump on the cover instead of Hillary Clinton on the cover. That's just rampant hypocrisy, and it's rampant just civil liberties for me, but not for thee. And that's not tolerable in our country. If you were going to make these arguments for Hillary Clinton, it's perfectly proper to make them for Donald Trump. If you're going to make them for Donald Trump, perfectly proper to make them for Hillary Clinton. If Hillary Clinton had been elected, Republicans, the same ones who are praising me, would be saying, lock her up and teach her, and they'd be opposing me, and they'd be doing all the things to me that the liberals are trying to do to me now, silence me. But it wouldn't work, because I'm going to keep making my points, whether it helps Trump or whether it helps the communists or Nazis, as I defended them over the years, or whether it helps Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter to me as a civil libertarian. The group of beneficiaries of my civil liberties arguments are, I'm going to make the same argument, no matter whose civil liberties are at risk. Well put. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, to be fair, um, nobody's picture is on the front cover of this book either. <laughs> Not Trump, nor Hillary, nor yours even. Um, but no. uh, uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, thank you so much for joining us from Martha's Vineyard. Great interview. Uh, thank you so thank much. Thank you Good so question. much. I really appreciate it. Have a, have a wonderful rest of your summer. Thank you so much. The book is The Case Against Impeaching Trump. I'm Lise Wheel for Pursuit of Justice. Thank you so much. Till next time.